with this message and going through it because it's a hard message and it's an urgent message. Some of you have uh, <laughs> been wondering, I don't think anybody's vocalized it to me, but I can see the look in the eyes of some people uh, like I'm crazy, which is not unusual at all, but, uh, but specifically because... Uh, Perhaps you've perceived in me a, a, a shift in direction. It's really not, but it's a renewed focus on discipleship. Because I do feel like for all of the good things that we have done here as a church, I as a pastor in particular have dropped the ball when it comes to discipleship. and We have not made the best use of our 15 years together. And I confess that before God and you, and I apologize to you. This text that we are reading today is why we cannot waste time. Why we must take discipleship seriously. It's why on Wednesday nights we're not studying the Bible anymore. We're studying the Bible and how to study the Bible so that we as individual Christians and as a collected church can know God's word for ourselves and see the truth of what he is telling us. That we might grow in our discipleship to become more like Christ. And as we devour passionately the pure milk of God's word, that we might graduate from milk to get off of formula, and praise God, we have not been a church that has been sucking on pacifiers. We've been drinking milk. But it's time for us to begin to graduate toward meat. It's time for us to not only feed ourselves, but to be preparing food for ourselves. It's time for us not only to feed and prepare, but to feed others. The time has long since passed for that. But today as we read this text, this is the pinnacle, the, the apex, the, the climax, if you will, of this section that we've been preaching through. We've been, we've been reading God's Word in Luke chapter 12. We've been seeing Jesus preaching to the crowds. And in this passage, it all kind of comes to a head in what we're seeing today. And in a particular portion of this, we'll see even the, the climax of the climax, as it were. And Jesus has a different tone here. The same preacher who was seemingly rather calmly saying, don't fear, watch out for hypocrisy, don't have any fear of man, don't worry about the things of this earth, but get yourself focused on the things of God. That same Nazarene preacher now develops a, a different tone, a different sense of urgency to say, listen, you are not getting this. It's not what you think. Stop with your comfortable religion. So today, it is my responsibility to deliver this hard message to myself and to you. The day I can do this without a broken heart is the day I quit. Let's pause to pray. Father, you have something to say to us today. Protect us from any flawed framework that would block us from seeing what you have. Protect us from the humanness of the vessel and focus us on the eternal perfection of your word. Develop in us today a sense of urgency. A holy fear and yet a profound, life-giving hope. 
Protect us from the devil's lies and any deceiving or distracting voice. Help us now to set aside the things that might keep us from being able to fully receive what you have for us and fully engage with your heart. Speak by your spirit today, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Leading up to and, and during World War II, the German government shifted. It was different than it had been before. And as Adolf Hitler took power and was elected or affirmed to his position by a national referendum, by a popular vote of the people, the culture of Germany was bigger than one man. The culture was already going a particular direction. And much like Franklin Roosevelt in the United States, right around that same time, this young, brilliant orator, this powerful, charismatic leader, stepped into the void in an economically downtrodden place. Everywhere was during this Great Depression. And he stepped into this void and spoke to the people in a way that captured their attention. His message was essentially, to begin with, some of you may remember this from our own recent histories, it's the economy, stupid. That's where Hitler was coming from. Look, we're going to fix this. I'm going to bring hope and change. I'm going to make Germany great again. And the people loved it. They were on board to see their own personal ticket punched. To be able to see their, uh, their economics changed. To be able to benefit rather than just suffer through the difficult times. And Hitler accomplished that. We all know the cost. But bigger than that, yes, bigger than Hitler, was what happened among the people. How did what was once the Holy Roman Empire, the land that became the land of Reformation under Luther and so many other great reformers, this hotbed of Scripture, how did it become Nazi Germany, the Third Reich? home of the Holocaust. You go from Martin Luther directing us back to Scripture to Nazis quoting Luther to destroy Jews. How does that happen? The exact same way that the crowds who went from declaring Jesus king started to shout, crucify him. The exact same way that we here today have strayed, not just in America, but specifically in the church that wears the name of Jesus Christ, we have strayed and wandered from the truth because we have sought to remain neutral, to do life in a way that is comfortable, that seems right to our own understanding, with respectable religion, Seeking a, a better version of what we've done in the past. Jesus, in this passage, sees that portrait and throws a rock at it. He jumps right into the middle of this. And we're going to be looking specifically at chapter 12 of the book of Luke, starting with verse 49. And running through chapter 13, verse 9. I'm going to read this with you today. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you, to use one of ours because you want to get the Bible in your hands. 
If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, that, that you can use and mark up, then please take it with you. If you need one, just raise your hand and Mr. Gary will take care of you and get you all hooked up with that. But we want to have God's Word in our hands. Let's read together. Beginning with verse 49, our Lord says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it's completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, having been speaking to his disciples, now he says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we look at this, the sense of urgency here is amped up. It's as if Jesus pauses, reflects, sees what's going on, and puts an exclamation point right in the center of this to say, listen, pay attention, you must get this. This is urgent. If this were a written text that he were delivering, he might have highlighted it. If it were a text, it would be all caps. He's trying to get a point across that is crucial. Let's pan out just a moment. Jesus has been preaching throughout the countryside. He's been doing miracles. The religious leaders are opposing him. He knows that, but the crowds are gathering around him. Just a short time before this, he refers to the same crowds as being wicked. This wicked generation. You're here looking for a sign. You're not getting one, except the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was a call to repentance. Elsewhere, we see that it specifically refers to Jesus in his death and resurrection. But he's using it here in Luke's context to say, repent, like they did. Like the Ninevites, the pagan Gentile Ninevites. (laughs) Jonah reluctantly shared the word, but they scooped it up. Not because they loved the gentle Jesus that was being proclaimed. No, this Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. Their 
message was, God's going to judge you, you're all going to die. That was it. Hope was not offered in that preaching. But they said, listen, we got to turn to God. we got to hope that maybe He will relent. And they did. The Queen of the South came to Solomon to seek her wisdom. And Jesus said, you wicked generation, you're looking for a sign, but you're missing out. Somebody greater than Solomon is here. You have the embodiment of wisdom here with you, and you don't care. So these from the past will rise up at the judgment to condemn you. They will testify against you. In light of that, in light of that picture, then Jesus goes in this big crowd, thousands of people trampling on top of one another, and he speaks to them. And he first says to his disciples, watch out that you don't become hypocrites like the religious leaders here. Don't let that happen. Don't be concerned about what men can do to you. If you're concerned about the approval of man, then you are failing to gain the approval of God. You can't have both. So ditch it, forget about it, pursue God. Hang the cost, go forward with him. And don't get caught up, he says to the crowd now, don't get caught up in all of the stuff, all the concerns of this world around you. Oh, my life is hard. Yes, it is. It's supposed to be. Sin is in the world. It's time to get used to that. As a friend of mine used to say, life is rough, get a helmet. It's, that's just reality. You think life is bad? You're right. It is bad. Stop trying for it to not be bad. If you're looking for inspiration, he's not offering it, and neither am I. That's not the point. We live in a fallen world, and the curse of sin is with us. Not only is it with us, it is in us. It's who we are in ourselves. Our hope is that we can be changed. He gets to that. But he says, don't, don't get caught up in those things. Why are you worrying about the stuff of this life when you know you have a father who already controls all of this? He can handle it. There's nothing, not one part of your life that God isn't in control of that he can't handle. And as Paul said, he's working all these things together for our good, for God's glory. Joseph, back in Genesis, having been sold by his own brothers into slavery... That was the better option as opposed to killing him. So they sell him into slavery. He gets carried off, becomes a slave in Egypt, far, far away, doesn't get to see his father or his family. They lie to his dad, tell him, oh, he was killed by a beast. Nope, he's actually a slave because we're wretched people. He goes, he becomes a slave, but he keeps his integrity, he honors God, he lives for God no matter what happens around him, and he becomes elevated. Because the characteristics of godly people are appealing and have a natural respect that follows them. He gets framed for sexual assault, and next thing you know, he's in jail. Bottom of the barrel again. Everything is going wrong for this cat, except for God has a plan. And the entire thing culminates, as you know, with him becoming the number two guy in all of Egypt for a reason. It's not... Because anybody can, get, can have a success if they get a lucky break. It's not because he had a dream. It's not because he had a Technicolor dream coat or fancy songs. It's because God was sending all of us a message. For all of his people in Israel and for all who would ever follow him, what Joseph said to his brothers is the pinnacle of everything that we see really in the whole book of Genesis. And really, ultimately, from Genesis to Revelation, we see this. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. So all the junk in your life, all the junk in this world is something that God is actually handling and not just handling if you can receive this. He is orchestrating it. He is using even the things that oppose Him to work out a greater purpose, to do a greater good. Oh, but, but I don't understand that. I don't know how that goes. Yeah, no, because you're not him. That's why it's greater. Because I, I got a little, you know, eight-pound head here, right? I, my brain is not big enough to be able to handle God things. 
But what we see God saying over and over through Scripture is essentially, relax, I got this. Lean into it because I am doing it. Yes, you will go through the flood and the fire, but I'll be with you. Nothing can happen to you that I am not standing with you through. When those three Hebrew boys got thrown into the fiery furnace, there was a fourth man there, one who looked like the Son of God. Guess why? It was the Son of God. God was with them in the fiery furnace, and the Scripture tells us when they came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. Daniel's in the lion's den. And can you imagine what it's like to be in a a pit full of lions, specifically starved to be hungry so that they will tear you apart? And they look at you, they maybe sniff you, and then they start to purr. And they curl up on your lap instead of eating you. God was with him, but he didn't take him out of the circumstances. His faithfulness to God kept his focus on what God was doing rather than what he was doing. So Jesus is calling the people throughout this entire context in in 12 and 13 to say, look, get your eyes off of earth. We memorized Colossians 3.2 in a recent week. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We need to be able to focus on what is real not on what seems real. So as Jesus tells them all of these things, it leads right into the the paragraphs right before this text that we're reading. So I want to have you see that as a piece of the context. He tells them, get your minds up, and when you release your earthly concerns, then you can embrace heavenly priorities. Notice what he says starting in verse 35. Be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Okay, so imagine, you know, your employer is gone. He's on vacation doing his thing and he's left you with a task. And you need to be mindful, watchful, being aware that he is going to return. You may not know when, but there's work to do. Do the work. When the master returns, let him find you doing what you were meant to do. Verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Now, remember, he's talking about himself as he says this. When he's talking about the master returning, he's talking about himself. They don't know this yet, but that's who he's talking about. So when he says what's going to happen, he knows because it's him. Truly I tell you, the master, who it should be logically the one being served, will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what, at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his, home be bro- his house be broken into. In other words... You don't know when he's coming. So be ready all the time. Be on guard all the time. Like like you have to maintain your security at home all the time. Because thieves don't make appointments. You need to be protected from mayhem. Like the guy in the commercial. You also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So Peter wants clarification. Lord, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I'm hearing you say this, and, and I'm not quite sure I get it. Are you talking to them? Are you talking to all these people out here? Are you talking to us? Because I kind of feel like you might be talking to me. Jesus doesn't answer it directly, but he makes it very clear. Yes, I'm talking to you and everybody else. Notice what he says. The Lord answered in verse 42, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge Uh, of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces. That's kind of harsh, right? My boss has never done that. 
but can you imagine? He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. In other words, not only will he be destroyed, he will go to hell. An allusion to what he said earlier in chapter 12 when he said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who after the body's been killed can throw you to hell. 47, the servant who knows the master's will. This is where he answers Peter's question, by the way. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. You still get punishment, but more is expected when I told you what to do. When you know what to do and you don't do it, that's even worse than being ignorant and not doing it. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Oh, I wish it were already kindled. This is where he starts to get into his point here. This is the culmination of all the rest of the things that he's said. It's been building, it's been building, it's been building. Now he gets to a place where he's like, okay, I'm going to let you in on what's happening here. Because you get to see all these other things. The crowds want rock star Jesus. The disciples get it. They want Messiah Jesus, the Son of Man, to come and, and rule and reign. They want Him to establish the kingdom. And some of them are a little confused and want their prestigious positions to go along with that. He sets them straight. But what they don't get is what He's really about. Let me pause just to direct your attention for a minute. Think back to Christmas. At Christmas time, when we speak of the birth of the Messiah, we often go back to Old Testament prophecies, don't we? When you sing Handel's Messiah, and we look at the Isaiah prophecies that point forward to Christ, most of those prophecies that we talk about in conjunction with Christmas are actually prophecies of the second coming. They're actually prophecies of what will happen when Jesus comes to establish his literal kingdom on earth. And they're associated, they're, they're in conjunction with the, the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord always is judgment. It's when Christ returns and God judges the earth. The term fire in Scripture is almost always, not exclusively, but almost always associated with judgment. When we see fire, it has to do with God's wrath. It has to do with God's glory. It has to do often with suffering. We see, we're familiar with the phrase baptized by fire, things like that. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Fire is not generally, in those illustrations, a good thing. But when we see those prophecies of Messiah coming, even the baby we see in the manger, we're actually looking past the manger to the return to the second coming, when the Prince of Peace actually establishes the kingdom of peace. But how does he do that? All of those prophecies, everything we see in the book of Revelation, even what we see in, in Thessalonians, we see him ruling with an iron scepter. The only perfect judge actually judging. The perfect king putting down all sedition. There is no longer any sin. There is no darkness. There is no curse. It's a new heaven, new earth, remade. But before the, old, before the new can be brought, the old must be destroyed. All things will be purified with fire. What Jesus is saying here is a hard thing. He's saying, what, what I am bringing as I preach to you this news of the kingdom is the kingdom. And the kingdom of God coming near to you means that his judgment is imminent. We don't talk about judgment a lot in a positive light. For the sake of time, I won't take you there, but uh, many of the Psalms, and we've read some of them recently, refer to the judgments of God as praiseworthy. Praise God for His judgments. Praise God for putting down the wicked. 
The hard part of that, that includes everybody. Here's what Jesus is talking about. As we look at this whole package, it comes together in this idea, we've stated it in the core reality for you, it comes together in this idea that judgment is coming, but mercy is available. This is the glory of the gospel. It's only good news if we understand the bad news. The bad news is you are on the wrong side of a holy God who will judge you for your sins. That's me. That's you. That's everybody. There are zero exceptions to that. In all of human history, zero exceptions. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have sin that we need to pay for. The problem is, sin is only paid for with what? Death. That's it. Death. The wages of sin is death. That's pretty bad news. And you're already on that road. And so am I. Until we choose to embrace the offer that the judge is making. God gives us what is essentially kind of a plea deal. Maybe a better way of looking at it is clemency. Maybe a better way of looking at it, a more accurate way, is that the judge stepped out from behind the bench, took off his robe, and served our sentence for us. Therefore, pardon is available. Judgment is coming, but mercy is available. As we look at this passage, as we see how this unfolds, we will see, lost my notes there for a second. We will see here that uh, there is a structure to it. It's kind of building through, you look at 49 to 53, and Jesus is saying a particular thing. He's talking about coming to bring fire, but first he has a baptism he has to go through. And then in 54 to 59, he says, you need to be interpreting the present time the way you would the weather. Understand what's coming, prepare for it. Then in the first five verses of chapter 13, we see really the climax of not only this section, but the whole section. Basically, repent or perish. It's, it's coming. It's getting hot. You better get right. Wrapping up with verses 6 through 9. And Jesus tells this parable of a man with a fig tree. As we look at this, mark this down. Hard truth destroys soft peace. Hard truth destroys soft peace. As Jesus is laying this out, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, I've, I've come to bring fire on the earth, how I wish it were already kindled. This is the judgment that is coming. He's inaugurating this. And I wish that this were underway because the closer we get to that, all of the sin goes away. All the hardship goes away. All the heartbreak goes away. All the pain, all the bigotry, all the injustice, all of the terrible things that we see in this life, the cancer, the abuse, gone. And I can't wait to see all of that gone. The problem is it all comes to an end when all that is wicked, all that is not of God, is completely, utterly burned up and destroyed. That leaves me caught in the wash because I'm a sinner. Therefore, I'm going to be burned up and destroyed. But Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and I'm constrained until that's done. Why? Because there's an offer on the table. We'll get to that in a moment. Notice this. Truth inevitably divides before it can unify. Truth inevitably divides before it can unify. Here's what he's saying. You think I came to bring peace, but you're missing it. Your version of peace is everybody getting along. That's not what I'm here for. 
The version of peace that I'm bringing is a unity in the truth. You can jot down Ephesians 4. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. But in Ephesians 4, we see that those who are in the body are to be built up, to grow up, to be discipled until we all reach unity in the faith by understanding Christ. We grow up into Him who is our head. But the unity is based on truth. There is no true unity apart from truth. Truth inevitably must divide before it can unify. It can't bring us together until first the wheat is separated from the chaff. We can't just ignore what we stand for. This is why I, I half chuckle and half weep every time I see that coexist bumper sticker. You all know the one I'm talking about, right? With all the little religious symbols on there. Let's just all get along. <laughs> Except for all of these religions make truth claims that are antithetical to one another. Most of all, one in particular claims of Christ, the claims of the Word of God, Judaism as well, but it, it stops and unfortunately doesn't follow through on what it's meant to be. The claims of Christ is that there is one way to get to God. This is truth. All, all other things are falsehood. Therefore, it is impossible, it is impossible for you to claim Christianity with any sort of integrity. And just think, it's, we just all get along. We're all on different paths to the same God. Let's just forget about doctrine, because that's hard, and we might argue, and that, that divides us. Dude, you're already divided. You're just not talking about it. Truth must divide first, so that based on that truth, we can come together. We can have something of substance that binds us. Apart from the Word of God, we float. We get tossed around. We must, we must be strengthened in the truth. And if we don't embrace the reality, then we live in the fantasy. This is why hard truth destroys soft peace. Because when I see that reality, I can't have the fake peace. Those very, very tenuous treaties that led us into World War I, but that's another conversation for another time. Hard truth destroys soft peace. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, this is the division I'm bringing. It's not, he's not talking about families that don't get along. And he's not talking about you know, you become a Christian, so then you're a jerk to everybody. You know people like that. little note for you. They're probably not Christians. Probably have the jersey, but they're not on the team. <clears throat> if you are a Christ follower, then you look like Christ. That's the nature of the word. So by definition, if you don't look like Christ, you're not a Christian. That's a problem for a lot of us, isn't it? So I better start looking in the mirror and start lining up my thinking so I can line up my behaviors. Change comes from within. As, <clears throat> excuse me, as he's talking about this division, he's talking about the division over truth. There is Christ and there is everything else. Why would that be divisive if Jesus is love? Because he's not only love. He is the only love there is. Outside of Christ, outside of God's reality, love doesn't actually truly exist. But truth matters. I cannot love someone and lie to them and call it truth. Therefore, if I see somebody and I look at their sin and I turn the other way and say, you know, just live and let live, everybody do your own thing, I don't love them. I can tolerate them, but it's not love. I can't see a starving child, and that makes me feel bad. Well, I don't have anything but this rotten, poisoned meat over here, so I'm going to give them that. They'll feel better then. Is that loving? Of course it isn't. That's destructive. That's what happens when we pursue this soft peace 
getting along with everybody, getting along with the world, fitting in with the culture at the expense of hard truth. I have to move on. I want to draw your attention to James 4.4 where he says that if you choose friendship with God, friendship with the world, you forfeit friendship with God. You can't have both. By definition, you cannot have both. Light and darkness do not have fellowship together. It doesn't mean you don't be kind to the world. It doesn't mean that you don't show love to the world because that's our job, to bring them from darkness to light. But if you are light, the darkness and those who belong to the darkness will hate you. If they don't, you better check your lamp. Moving forward. Note this. Mercy is urgent because judgment is final. Mercy is urgent because judgment is final. Notice what he says next. After he talks about this division, he's answering Peter's question. Now he goes back to the crowd and he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does. They have a similar situation to us. They're near the Mediterranean. They're east of there like we are with Lake Michigan. We see storm clouds come over the horizon, uh, coming over Lake Michigan. We know what's going to happen. We get prepared for it. You see those coming and you start packing up things that are outside and you get out your umbrella or you go in the house and you you take care of things because you know that something is coming and you prepare for it. And he's telling them the same thing. How, How is it that you can look at this stuff and you get it? But here I've laid this out for you. I've been declaring for you what's happening. You can see the signs of the times. You know what John said, what I said. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And you act like it's nothing. You've had the prophets. You've had the law. The scriptures have been among you. And yet you have ignored it. You're planning a picnic when you can see the storm clouds on the horizon What's wrong with you? That's what he's saying here. Mercy is urgent. There is a storm coming. Notice how he clarifies it for them in verses 57 and following. Why don't you judge for yourself what's right? Why don't you read the signs? As you're going with your advert, he uses this word picture to, to make his point. As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, so picture you're, you know, you're going to uh, Judge Judy or whatever. You're going to get your stuff you know, settled out. We're going to go to, to the small claims court. We're going to go to a greater court, and we're going to get our debt settled. But I better make sure that I have this figured out. If I owe a debt, and I'm going to have the judge settle this debt... The smart thing is for me to try and get this settled out before I get to the judge. Because when I get there, this might not go the way I want it to. And I could have a problem. Imagine that you have a lot of debt. Anybody have a lot of debt? Don't have to raise your hand for that. And the IRS says, you know what? Not only do you have your consumer debt, but you haven't paid your taxes in many years. And we've got to lean on your house. And we're going to actually put you in jail. Or you can be proactive about it and say, look, i got to settle this out. This is why people make all this, these commercials for uh, companies that can settle your debts for you and all that. Because it's much wiser to be proactive. Now, they're going to take a lot of money out of your pocket. That's not necessarily good practice. But the idea of being proactive in seeking to settle it before it hits you is wise. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You got some problems. And you better figure out how you're going to get it settled out of court before you get to court. And it's going to cost you stuff you can't pay. Notice what he says. Verse 39, 59. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. There is a judgment that is coming, and you will pay the full price for what you owe. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is, say it with me, death. Every sinner has to pay all of that. That's what he's saying here. You are going to pay every bit of your sin debt. Unless you get mercy before you get there. Mark this. Seek mercy before it is too late. 
Seek mercy before it is too late. Because when you get to the judge and you stand before the judge, it's too late. No deals are being offered. You pay the price. God's judgment is a final thing. When the fire actually takes hold, when the day of the Lord comes, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Jesus is saying, be ready. Seek mercy before it's too late. Then this business as usual means destruction as promised. Business as usual means destruction as promised. Jesus uses a couple of contemporary historical illustrations for them. Things that they are familiar with. As Pilate shed the blood of worshipers and mixed it with their sacrifices. As this local wall tower falls down, uh, falls down and crushes people and they're dead. And so the perception of people very often is that when you suffer, it's because God has judged you. And there get very many cases that's the case, and others it's not. And so as Jesus is addressing this, he kind of tells them, look, you're seeing this like Job's friends, as if these people suffered more than others because they were more wicked than others. Uh, let me refocus you a little bit. There was some president at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus doesn't even get into it. I think they, what they're wanting seems to be that they want Jesus to condemn Pilate, right? Nasty Romans. Those terrible Romans have done a terrible thing. You need to say terrible things about the terrible Romans who did the terrible thing. And Jesus says, you're missing the focus. Didn't I just say a little bit ago, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can throw you into hell? With that in mind, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, he adds to their their news, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem that it didn't fall on? You think that they were worse off because it happened to them? No, you're missing it. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will, most of you, perish. That's not what he says. You too will all perish. And then he gives a parable. And the parable makes the point. But we're going to get to that in just a moment. Before we get to it, you need to see what he's telling them. You can't just do what you've been doing. You can't just go along to get along. You can't just fit in with the culture. You can't just have respectable religion. You can't just keep going to the synagogue, doing what everybody's doing, hearing the Word of God, walking away, and not acting on it. You have been called to repentance. And unless you turn from your way to God's way, unless you say, I'm giving up my life, He's been making this case throughout the chapters leading up to this. Unless you say, I'm giving up my life and I'm taking hold of your life. I will lose my life for your sake. Unless you do that, you will perish. The destruction, the fire that he spoke of, the judgment that is coming is absolutely coming and there is no second chance. The idea of a purgatory or uh, the various levels of heaven that the Mormon church teaches, these are false doctrines. Once you die, you don't get a second chance. You don't get to pray your way out. You don't get to have your, your relatives pay your way out. There is no paying for your sins. Christ paid for them. And either you pay for all of it because you didn't accept Him, or you pay for none of it because you did. That's it. There is nothing else. There is an urgency to this. But if we do what seems right in this world, we will face judgment. Notice this. 
all that is normal will be destroyed. All that is normal will be destroyed. We live in a broken, fallen world because of sin. All that is broken and fallen because of sin will be burned up and rebuilt new. All of us who are sinners, who have a sin nature, that's all of us, are destined to be burned up in the fire, to face judgment and to be condemned and separated from God for eternity. That is our default. And we as Christ followers, those of you in this room who have already come to Him, you need to get that. Because maybe you've made a choice, but your friends and neighbors have not. And it's an inevitable reality that in this room, right now, as we talk, many of you have not come into that relationship. You've not turned from your way to His way. You maybe have gone to church, you've probably called yourself a Christian, may have even been baptized, but you haven't let go of your life to take hold of His. So you're what is called a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. You've got the jersey, but you're not on the team. But you can't fool God. Business as usual brings destruction as promised. If you're fitting in with the darkness, you're not light. That's just how science works. God's really good with science. Darkness is driven out by light. Don't cover up the light that's in you. The light of Christ. Last point. We've seen that hard truth destroys soft peace. We've seen that mercy is urgent because judgment is final. We've seen that business as usual means destruction as promised. But Jesus says something else very clearly and specifically in this parable. He's saying that God's offer of mercy has a deadline. God's offer of mercy has a deadline. Read the parable with me in verse 6. Now when he speaks this parable, just so, so you know... As he said, I speak in parables so that those who are out there who don't have ears to hear will hear but not understand. They'll see it and they won't perceive it. Because this is an inside job. You need to repent. You need to be regenerated by the Spirit in order to get this. So he speaks in parables to the crowd so that he can, as he said earlier, bring division. Truth that separates those who will hear from those who will not. Here's what he says. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not <coughs> excuse me, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. When he tells parables, the nature of a parable is it's a story that is making a single point. It's a fictional story, sort of a word picture. It's a metaphorical idea that it's not designed, it's not its nature in a parable for us to break it down. Sometimes we'll do that. We'll try to get all these little nuances out of it and because he said this, that means we're going to do this and, and come up with inspirational or applicational things. But that's not the point of a parable. Sometimes there are ancillary things that we can build on, but that's not the point. A parable speaks to a particular point. It is interesting that he mentions three years. Jesus is coming to the end of his three-year earthly ministry here from his public time to going to, uh, to Jerusalem, but that's only an identifier. The point is that the owner of the vineyard will cut down the tree and burn it up. But he's patient. And the one who was sent to care for the vineyard, son of man, is tending to it. He says, bear with me just a little longer. Just a little longer. Don't cut them off yet. But that time will come. 
Our memory verse for today is Isaiah 55, 6. And I would encourage you to commit this to your heart. Not only your memory, but to your heart. Isaiah cries out to the people of God. He's not saying this to the Gentiles. He's saying this to Israel. And I would extend that to us as well. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Why does he say it that way? Because there is a time when he will not allow himself to be found. When he will not be near. When he will no longer come to seek and to save that which is lost. But he will come to judge. With his winnowing fork in his hand. Turn, if you would, very quickly to Matthew 3.12. If you're less familiar with uh, where things are in your Bible, go back to the left. Just a couple of books. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can back up a little bit. <clears throat> this is John the Baptist speaking, and he's speaking about Jesus. He's talking to the crowds, and, and he's speaking then to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. He calls them a brood of vipers and, and challenges them then to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Stop talking about it. Start being about it. But notice what he says in verse, uh, let's start with verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you, speaking of himself, I baptize you with water for repentance. Notice how he separates these ideas of baptism. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, not with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Isn't that what Jesus said? Come to bring fire with judgment. How do I know that he's talking about judgment here? Notice what he says in verse 12. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with the fire of judgment. I add in parentheses. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up all the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the fire Jesus is speaking about. When time is done, when that final whistle blows, church people say trumpet, work people say whistle. So when that final time goes out and it's all zeros on the clock and there's nothing left, But judgment, it's too late to seek mercy. God's offer of mercy has a deadline. Turn to the back of the book, to 2 Peter. Almost a revelation, not quite. Right after Hebrews and James, we get Peter's letters. We're going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you to. Let's start with verse 3. Peter, as he writes to the church about the coming of the Lord, understands what perhaps you understand as well. That it's easy for people to look at it and discount the prophecies of God because it hasn't happened yet. Here's what he said. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. This is the crucial verse we want to see here. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, I would underline this. He is patient with you. 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But notice what he says after this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Understand, not only, not only is judgment coming, but mercy is available. But there's a deadline to it. Mark this, salvation is available now, but not forever. Salvation is available now, but not forever. We often say no one is promised tomorrow. Nobody knows what the future holds. Get ready, because you could die on the way home from church. You could die right now as I'm speaking. The Lord could return during these moments that we're together. God is offering mercy. Mercy is available to wipe out your debt. He says, I've got it paid already. You just have to accept it. Receive this gift. But if you don't receive this gift, the time will come when that offer has expired and it is no more and you cannot repent. You cannot turn and you cannot therefore be saved. So you better get a sense of urgency. Because while it might seem like he's slow in coming, you've got to understand he's only, he's only taking his time as we see it because he wants everyone to repent, to turn from your wickedness, from your own ways, from thinking that this life is all there is and give yourself to him that you might be saved. That's what he wants. But that offer isn't forever. This is the most Crucial thing that we can understand. This matters because the coming of God, the judgment of God, is either good news or bad news depending on which side of it you are. If you are among the chaff, it's bad news. If you are among the wheat, it is the best news ever. And the only way to go from one to the other, because all of us start out as chaff, all of us are children of darkness, all of us by default are dead in our sins. But he's saying, look, come to me. No one who comes to me will ever be turned away, but you've got to come to me. He's calling you. He wants to change your heart from the inside out. Not clean up your act. Not give you a better version of yourself. Not give you your best life now. But to give you real life forever. That never ends. That can't be diminished by the hardships of life in a fallen and temporary world. Most of us in this room get that. Some of us in this room have not. I'm not saying that as judgment, I'm saying that as reality. I don't even know who it is. But I know that with this many people together, some of us maybe think we get it and we don't. And we've got to reevaluate. But all of us have people we care about who need to know that judgment is coming, but mercy is available. And it's only available in Christ, and it's a limited time offer. With that said... I want to encourage you and encourage you to proclaim to others to seek the Lord while he may be found. Because it won't be forever. Let's pray together. Father, the opportunities that you give us it's just kind of unthinkable. The way you have provided for us and 
particularly here in this society where your word has been just everywhere. <coughs> There's no excuse for us because we have more access to your word than anybody ever has ever had. We have more study tools. We have more preachers. And yet we've spent so much time preaching a, a soft peace. A feel-good gospel that's no gospel at all. Or preaching hellfire and brimstone without the hope of Christ that traps us in externalism. Just clean up your act and do better. And if you follow this formula, then everything will be good and you'll go to heaven. If you pray these prayers, God, change us. Change our hearts. Change our perspectives. We want to be yours. Give us a sense of urgency to have a crisis of faith that brings us to our knees before your holiness. Make us ready. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. <clears throat>